0: Hey, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Julia LaRoche Show. Today's guest is Alan Patrykhoff. He is a venture capital pioneer and legend. Alan started his third business just two years ago at the age of 85. It's called Primetime Partners, and it's all about investing in what he calls the ageless generation, those over the age of of 60. At 87, Alan is currently training for the New York City Marathon. He will be attending Burning Man later this week, and he also wants to live to be 114 years old. In this conversation, we talk about the lessons learned over his 50-plus years in venture capital. I certainly learned some new things, and I think you will too. Alan Patrickoff venture capital legend and pioneer, chairperson, and co-founder of Primetime Partners and author of the new book, No Red Lights, Reflections on Life, 50 Years in Venture Capital and Never Driving Alone. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. Well, it's great to see you again. And I got to say your book, it just blew me away and it is a must read. It is full of lessons and perspective, just the way you approach life, business, investing, art, politics, and volunteering. You certainly have a lot of zest for life and Um, You are 87 years old, and in the book, you wrote that you are determined to live to be 114 years old. Talk to me about that goal. Why 114?
1: I heard a lecture about, and I can't date it, but 10 or 15 years ago at Mount Sinai, and uh, the gerontologist who spoke said that all of us could live at that time to 114. And the only reason we didn't is because we had, in the interim, cancer tuberculosis, uh, hip replacement, pneumonia, and each one of those things chipped off from 114. And of course, uh, getting hit by a car or, or better still a delivery bike, uh, takes take has some impact. And of course, your genes have some impact. But uh, basically what he was getting at is the reason we live to 114 is we have medical problems on the way. And that chips up enough to get you down to wherever you end up. So I, uh, I have had several of those uh, difficulties during my life and, and uh, uh, don't need to enumerate, but uh, I still like the idea of 114. So I said the hell that I'm gonna go for 114. And so that's how I picked that and I've actually stuck with it. And very often people will say uh, like you have and introduce me and say uh, 118. I say, no, no. I said 114, so that's where I'm at Uh, and uh, we'll see. And as I say in my book, if I don't make it, come to my funeral and laugh if you're still alive.
0: I like that. And um, maybe I'll set a goal that's similar to that, because it is certainly inspirational. And I imagine when you have a goal like that, too, um, and especially you recently started uh, your third business, too, but it must also just impact your psyche, the way you approach life. Talk to me about the importance of having those sorts of goals.
1: Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. Having that kind of thought process uh, makes you, uh, or I don't know which comes first, but Uh, I live a very positive life, a very optimistic life. Uh, I wake up every day enthusiastic uh, and I'm always open to uh, new opportunities, new ideas, uh, which partly is why I'm in the venture capital business because that's part of the nature of the venture capital business. But uh, I also uh, uh, just built in, uh, have that kind of uh, curiosity. And as you know, I'm headed for Burning Man very shortly uh, and uh, intend to walk jog the marathon sometime in November if I can make it. And uh, if in the meantime, maybe I'll come up with some other ideas. Uh, but I'm always open to new opportunities.
0: Yeah, I just didn't realize that until I read the book just how many different things you're involved in and. You definitely live a really dynamic and interesting life. And you mentioned going to Burning Man. Um, I've never been, but obviously I know people who've gone. And uh, what was it that made you want to go uh, to Burning Man?
1: Well, it's there. You know, why do people climb Mount Kilimanjaro? I mean, it's there. There are certain things in life, and you say, uh, you know, I'd like to try it. Uh, And uh, I think. People who are adventuresome and, uh, uh, you know, they try surfing. Uh, uh, Someone tried to get me to do trapezing recently, but I resisted that. But uh, other than that, I'm open to new ideas every day. And as I say, it it, it ties into being in the venture capital business, which is backing new ideas.
0: I like that. I got two lessons from you just out of that was, um, you know, having this optimism and also backing new ideas. Uh, Just pulling out some insights the folks listening, um, and the marathon too. Uh, tell me about the training. I know you've run the marathon five times. I think the last one you did was 1983, according to the book. How's the training going?
1: Uh, well, I have a, a uh, I call him a track coach. He calls himself a running coach. And I meet with him three days a week uh, and uh, in Central Park. And uh, we're in the middle of training. Uh, on the weekends, uh, I tend to cheat and do much longer runs, which he's, Uh, not in favor of it yet. Uh, That comes, I guess, later in September. Uh, But, uh, you know, I'm putting in the time. And the challenge will be not so much speed, but uh, staying on one's feet, because it will take me, uh, I don't know, he says six plus hours. I say it will be between seven and eight hours. And standing on your feet, uh, no matter what you're doing, is uh, tiring for seven or eight hours.
0: Well, I think it's certainly impressive. Um, I've run the marathon. It's just, it's such an amazing uh, New York um, event, and I will certainly be cheering for you. I want to talk about um, your latest venture in the last uh, two years, starting um, your third business, Primetime Partners. What made you want to start a new fund or a new business here?
1: Well, i had started uh, Alan Petroff Associates in 1970, which became APAX, which is Alan Patrick of Associates International. And uh, in 2000, early 2000s, I uh, one day realized that uh, we had really gotten so much bigger that it was becoming somewhat bureaucratic, and the fact that we had a habit to run the kind of size business we had. And I wasn't enjoying it as much. Plus, because our size of investments had increased, we were doing more private equity than we're doing. We're doing venture capital. And uh, I my love was really with early stage companies. So I uh, decided to t- turn it over to the other partners. And I didn't really know what I was going to do. And It turned out I spent uh, several years pro bono working for the World Bank and the IFC and a couple of nonprofits and uh, traveling around the world and uh, trying to Develop and encourage entrepreneurism and uh, small business enterprises uh, from uh, Chengdu in China to uh, La Paz, Bolivia, uh, and uh, most importantly in Africa, uh, where I spent most of the time. And uh, around 2006, I said, you know, there's a real opportunity to go back in the venture business again uh, with a different set of rules because. You know, you do learn something from having done it as long as I had. And so I started a new firm called Graycroft, which is named after my house in East Hampton, Long Island, which was built in 1894. So it's a name that uh, I didn't think would be too widely used. And uh, uh, we started out with a particular objective of investing in in the Internet and media companies uh, and in the venture in a venture capital mode. And by 2016, uh, uh, 18, I'd say, uh, Greycraft had also got very big. And we were also becoming uh, more of a, uh, more, developing more administrative processes. And we were investing larger size investments, even though I had th- hoped we could contain ourselves to pure venture. And, uh, I said, you know, I think I really want to do something else with my life. I don't I don't know what it is. And I uh, focused uh, at that time and reading a lot about older people. And I was seeing a lot of my friends retiring at much too early an age since I had started Graycroft at 72. Uh, the fact that there's forced retirement, in a lot of companies at 60 and certainly at 70. Uh, and I said, uh, you know, that's the prime of one's life. If you believe by 114, uh, at 60, it's oh, not even half, just about half your life has been lived. And by the way, the 114, I think if that same lecture were given today, it would probably be 120. Uh, but uh, I, I, I haven't heard the lecture. Uh, so I decided I would start something new and got intrigued with this area of the fastest growing part of the population being people over the age of 60. And uh, they uh, need everything. And they have, they're have they more computer literate than they were 10 years ago. They have lots of money. And uh, it's the fastest growing part of the population. By 2030, there'll be more people over 60 than there will be under 18. You hear every day now about People who are centenarians, centenarians I guess. Uh, and uh, I think we're only going to, you know, you could have five, six, seven million, hundred year old people in the matter of the next five, 10 years. So it's a growing mm-hmm. market with a lot of money, a lot of experience. And I wanted to uh, get involved in a, a fund that might service these people. Uh, and so we formed a company called Breakthrough primetime partners which is uh, uh, has a uh, uh, total objective of serving the uh, what I call the ageless generation with products services experiences technologies uh, uh, and so far in under two years we've made 25 investments and uh, it, it looks like looks very exciting although, You know, when you're in the early stage startup uh, incubation stage, you really don't know uh, how they're going to work out for a few years. And we're still in the early stages.
0: That's incredible. And I I love the name Primetime Partners, by the way. And you mentioned um, the ageless generation, that it's also the fastest growing, which is so interesting to me because sometimes it feels like um, with investing, all of these other things are focused on like a younger population, but you've really found an incredible area of focus here. And you mentioned too, um, just if you had to do that, if they had to do that lecture again, that maybe that age should be 120. What do you think it is? Um, what are the, what are the advancements or what are you seeing out there? That's making it possible for folks to live longer?
1: Well, I think that, you know, we're eating better. People are exercising more. I mean, my father, uh, smoked, you know, two packs a day, uh, had no restrictions on his diet. I was overweight and I don't think I ever saw him do a day of exercise. Maybe I saw him swim in the ocean, but that's about it. Uh, and I think that uh, today's uh, ageless uh, generation is, you know, going up doing Pilates and, and doing uh, um, every kind of workout with personal trainers, and exercise group and hiking more. And, uh, I think we've read enough to know that what are the things we can do to prevent illness coming, and uh, I think there've been obviously a lot of developments in the pharmaceutical area that have uh, uh, resulted in drugs that have increased longevity. Um, one of the one of the investments we've made in prime time is a chain of longevity clinics known as uh, Cenogenics. and uh, it's been around for a while and it's really growing very fast because people want to. Th- find out what they can do to extend their life cycle and to uh, slow down uh, disease or, or, or uh, uh, aging process. And uh, I think people are much more conscious today of, of that problem. So I think we picked a very good area and so far it seems to be resonating.
0: Yeah, certainly. Um, that, that's neat. You mentioned um, the investment focus on longevity. And also, I mean, if I go back to the top of this conversation, um, you even you mentioned like your own training for the marathon. And um, it sounds like, you know, not only are you optimistic about life, you just really invest um, in your health, too, which is incredibly important. And you also wrote about about your trainer quite a bit. What do you do? What, what can you share with the folks? Um, any other things that you do personally um, for your own health before we move on uh, more into the investing side of things?
1: Uh, well, I'm not, a, you know, I'm not a vegan or a vegetarian. Uh, I eat in moderation. I have a crazy habit that I started a few years ago is I weigh myself twice a day in the morning and at night. And if I vary by more than two pounds, I try to cut out a meal the next day. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I do a lot of exercise. I mean, you know, obviously if I'm going out three to five days a week uh, doing long, long walks. At, at heavy paces. If I have a trainer at home, uh, I'm uh, keeping myself in reasonably good shape. My doctor tells me, you know, my, my uh, blood pressure is 120 over 70, which is pretty remarkable. So, uh, you know, if I can keep that up, uh, I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm going to be around for a while. I love yeah, it. If I'm right, I've got 27 years left.
0: That's amazing. Um, I, and I'm optimistic, too, just based on everything you've been sharing. And um, so you're talking about some of the investments, um, the areas of focus for you all. And there's one stat that I was really surprised by, but in a really good way. And that's that 18% of your founders are over 50 years old. I would love to explore this with you, Alan. And, um, you know, you've started bus- three businesses now. You started your first, I think you're age 36, your second at age 72, and this one at age 85, I believe. Talk to me about, um, you know, founders who are a little bit older later in life starting and why that's important and why it's also important for investors to back them.
1: Well, you know, there have been studies done now, uh, not mine, independent studies. I think it was Harvard was one of them where, uh, they've determined that entrepreneurs in their fifties are more successful than those in their twenties or thirties. And, uh, uh, or let's put it over 40, uh, they're, they're more successful, uh, and I think it's, uh, they've been around longer and they have, uh, more experience. They have bigger Rolodexes, uh, and, uh, they still have a lot of energy and, uh, uh you know, I'd say wisdom counts.
0: Uh, Let's explore that. Like when you say wisdom counts, um, would love to just, you know, flesh that out a bit more and, um, you know, maybe juxtapose it a little bit, like what you've seen in your own career.
1: Well, I think that, you know, we say in, in the venture business, pattern recognition is the key to success, which is, means that you've seen everything once before, so you can kind of spot problems, uh, anticipate them. Uh, that's not a perfect science, but it, it does help somewhat. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I think that uh, uh, just time and grade, uh, having a good Rolodex, all of those things lead to uh, doing to doing your whatever field you're in successfully.
0: And I like that um, you all are focused on unlocking this untapped potential in this generation of entrepreneurs. Um, you know, kind of encouraging that rebirth of the older entrepreneurs. And you mentioned too just how big of a market this is. This ageless generation. Can you help like quantify for us um, your views on how big the market is and how maybe it compares to other ones out there? Just give folks a sense of what we're talking about when we talk about this ageless generation.
1: Well, I have I can't put a dollar number to it, but uh, there are uh, you know the percentage of population. Are I, you I, I catching me? I don't say off guard, but the the number of people that will be in this age group is. Uh, so large that uh, I can tell you it's a large, it, it, it's a big enough market, and everyone in the venture business wants to find a, a, a market that has, you know, is big enough to accommodate uh, uh, multiple players. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, you're not foreclosed with opportunities. But I would say that uh, keep in mind, you know, older people have. More money they've accumulated over their life, so they naturally have more money as opposed to a millennial who's just, uh, you know, perhaps come out of college or have their first or second job. So it goes with the territory. And as I say, that it's, it's a fast-growing market, and uh, the size is certainly big enough to satisfy plenty of players.
0: Yeah, fast-growing. Um, they have more money and a lot of opportunities out there. You mentioned earlier the longevity clinics. And what are the other areas um, within this space that are exciting to you or any of the businesses that you're starting to back that you're excited about?
1: Well, caregiving is a very important uh, aspect now. uh, That's one area. Uh, Doing anything that can prevent loneliness. That's one of the biggest uh, negatives of people who get older is they uh, become isolated. So things that will keep them busy, entertain them, educate them or whatever. Uh, 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 Telemedicine, where you're dealing with, you know, uh, millions of people in in, in senior living facilities that uh, need to be taken care of and they can't have all resident physicians. Uh, uh, Financial advisory, getting ready for their retirement in advance, Uh, uh, insurance and preparation. Uh, uh coming up with new living concepts, uh, new nu- nutritional uh, companies that are dealing with uh, post-acute problems and, and uh, trying to change diets uh, uh, keeping people trained so that they don't fall which is a big area uh, uh, you know the, the list the list goes on Re- retrofitting homes so that they're Uh, compatible to people who are older and need supports in their home. Uh, We have a catalog company called Carewell, which supplies uh, all the supplies you have in a catalog form. We have another company called, as I say, Cynogenics, which runs a chain of longevity clinics. Uh, So the the list is pretty long of where the opportunities are. Very interesting fact is that most of the companies we backed have been started by, people who have had something happen in their family, mostly their family, but a little bit friends too, but uh, where a family member, whether it's a husband, wife, daughter, uncle, grandparent has had some kind of uh, problem. And they have seen the fact that they didn't have uh, adequate treatment for that problem. And therefore it's been a uh, area that, uh, you know, they said, this is a good opportunity to, to start a company. Mm-hmm. And so we've seen a lot of startups from younger people who recognize the need in older people for the product or service.
0: Yeah, no, that's really incredible too. Just, um, you know, when the younger generation also uh, recognizes it as well. Um, okay. I want to um, start digging in more into the book. And, you know, one of the things, I, there's so many things I really liked, but the way you Talk about New York too. Um, and you're a lifelong New Yorker and you grew up there. What was, what was that like? And talk to me just a bit about like your younger years and how you even first got interested in, um, you know, business and investing.
1: Well, I think one, there are two, two different subjects. I mean, my, my early life was brought up in the kind of end of the depression. Uh, I lived on the west side of New York in a modest family upbringing. And, uh, uh, you know, a lot of things that were there in those days don't exist today. Uh, You know, we used to have a coal truck coming by and dropping coal into a chute. We had uh, the milkman, actually. He wasn't in a a horse and and carriage, but he was in a uh, milk truck that would come by and deliver milk. Uh, We would play stickball ball in the street, uh, because you could get in the streets in those days. Uh, I remember uh, going back to you know the 40s or 50s, uh, you could you would park your car in the street, there was an alternate side, and uh, if you parked and there was a snowstorm, and there were lots of snowstorms in those days, the snow would cover your car, and your car was there for the winter. Uh, today, if we have a snowfall, it's Usually, go in twenty four hours.
0: Yeah, it's definitely like a a, a total uh, difference. But okay, so um, let's talk about how you got interested in finance. I know you would, your dad was a stockbroker. You'd read the stock pages. But talk to me about just kind of your initial interest there.
1: Well, I was, you know, I was intrigued by the numbers. And, of course, you're intrigued by things going up and down. Uh, So there's movement at all times. And uh, so, you know, the stock market in those days, the uh, uh, newspapers, we had a lot of newspapers that came out at the end of the day. And my father would come up with a newspaper and read the stock pages. And I, uh, you know some shared some of that with him and uh so i had always been in, interested in the world of finance uh when i came out of college it was a natural thing to, to look in that area for an opportunity but you know i had gone to ohio state which was not exactly number one on anyone's list and uh uh there were no headhunters out those days or recruiters uh you really had to scratch around to to find a job and I did it with plain old shoe leather, walking from door to door and got very lucky and uh, got an opportunity from a company that uh, turned out to be a very high quality firm and from that I built up from one firm to another and uh, here I am today
0: yeah and you started your first um, venture capital firm at age thirty six and i don't I don't even know if um was venture i don't even know if it was there was even a venture capital industry at that point, or even terminology for that. Talk to me about like starting the first, uh, your first, your first firm.
1: Yeah. Well, what happened was that I had worked at one point for a very wealthy, not my own, a very wealthy family office. And I came to realize that the families were very good about investing in the stock market, but they really didn't do very well or had, very little interest in private investments uh what we call venture capital now but was then just called deals uh but because of the kind of uh networking of some of the leading figures on wall street uh they would share deals around with each other and no one knew anything about what they were doing but they would occasionally from time to time go into a deal and uh it, as I used to say, got put in a filing cabinet. No one paid attention. I got intrigued with the idea of uh, these private companies because they were not subject to the day-to-day fluctuations in the stock market. Uh, and, uh, you know, prices did not swing; they were st- totally stable. And uh, so I uh, I started taking interest in the portfolios of that we had at the. Uh, this the firm I was at, and uh, one of the first investments I made was in the New York Magazine, which we started, and then a medical company called Datascope Corporation, and a, and a uh, TV radio company called Lin Broadcasting, and those were all while I was working for someone else, and that gave me a taste for private investments, which I found much more satisfying than just being part of the, the public stock market. And uh, so I decided to start a firm which would service more other family offices who had the same kind of situation because uh, all these places focused on being in liquid companies, and but they all had a little bit of private companies. And I decided I'd help them monitor and take care of the... Uh, young investments they made and uh uh, so i set up a business to be their outside advisor for their private investments and uh it worked out from there i started a fund and then another fund and another fund and gradually i dropped the family clients that i had and just went into the fund management business
0: yeah um and i would imagine too do you, do you remember like the first deal you did um, when you went out on your own?
1: Absolutely. It uh, was in the secondary lead smelting business. It was a company that uh, today if they came for financing for a venture firm. I think <laughs> they wouldn't even get a, they, they wouldn't get a seat in the way of the waiting room. Uh, there'd be zero interest. But in those days we were straight scraping around to find deals and, It turned out that that was probably one of my more successful, if not most successful investments. Uh, It went from being a little scrapyard in New Jersey to being today one of the two or three, if not the leading uh, secondary lead and metal smelting company in the the entire world. uh, with Billions of dollars in revenue. So, uh, you know, from little acorns grow
0: that's amazing. Yeah, you're there early then. Um, and you mentioned, like, scraping around for deals. All right, take me back to this time period. How, how did you go about sourcing deals? How did this work?
1: Uh, that deal came to me through an intermediary an investment banker, which is highly unusual uh, today, uh, because they really, most of the companies that get financed, they go out and do it on their own. But uh, he brought it to me and uh, I followed up and uh, uh you know it, and it worked out pretty well
0: yeah so 50 years in venture um and obviously things are a lot different now i'm um, i'm sure people are like they're probably constantly pitching deals or um how do you kind of think about the evolution or the comparison does it does it surprise you like how much the industry has grown over the years uh what do you make of it
1: I would never dream the market would be this big. I mean, it was a fraction of the size. It wasn't even an industry until 1973, Uh, but it it was a uh, organic kind of uh, sharing deals among family groups, individuals, high net worth individuals. And uh, uh, it just grew into a more institutional type business to the point where today, I mean, it's probably 90% 90 institutions at least.
0: Um, Some of your more memorable deals, I know, um, I was reading you were involved in AOL, um, you're early in Apple, you've done a lot over the years. Um, And a lot of it is as technology has evolved. Do you have any memorable ones um, that stand out to you over the years?
1: Oh, of course, I mean, it's, uh, that's a hard question to, to answer. There's, uh, uh, I mean, each one had its own characteristics. I mean, I get most identified with Apple, which was really just a small investment we made in 1979, but it obviously gets a lot of attention since it was the second round of investment, so it was before it was public. And uh, obviously, appreciation has been dramatic. Uh, I was involved with AOL, which people don't realize was... Uh, was in bankruptcy when we invested it. It was a game company called Control Video, and we took it out of bankruptcy and uh, with others, and uh, you know, became America Online. Uh, uh, I guess the thing that I thought was most exciting was I was a, invested in the first cellular company, uh, which uh, when cellular came out in 1981 or 82. It was uh, done through a lottery where the government in effect gave away spectrum. I mean, it's hard to believe when today's spectrum sells in the billions, but in the beginning to encourage people to go into cellular and use that spectrum, uh, there was a lottery held and uh, you bid on different cities and we, we won Ohio and then added Michigan and Texas and then Puerto Rico and Went abroad, and it was a very exciting time. When originally, everyone thought that cellular penetration might end up being a couple of percent. Today, today, probably cellular penetration may be a hundred percent. For all I know,
0: that's cool. I, I've heard about this lottery, but I didn't know much about it. Like, how did you? How did you get involved in that? That's kind of cool.
1: And what? what? I'm and sorry? the cell?
0: You said there was a cellular lottery that yeah. you had a bid on yeah. for spectrum.
1: Uh, yeah, I, yeah I, there were two young guys. Who were, one had been in the FTC, one had been, they were childhood friends, Ohio, and they came to us at Alan of Associates and, and had this idea of participating in the lottery. And it seemed like a crazy idea because in those days, people thought that uh, it would be, uh, be uh, you know, have uh, 2% penetration. And I think today it's over 100%. So they market they expected was the, 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 established people who were running, uh, radio telephones at those days, AT&T and Motorola, uh, never dreamed of how big the sparking could be. And, uh, uh, certainly has been a big, big success and big opportunities for many companies.
0: Yeah. And your investments have spanned everything from, you know, the, the beginning of like the personal computer, cell, cell phones, internet, digital media, FinTech, podcasting, um, really like this evolution of technology, you've been on top of it. I, I would love to kind of go into, um, you know, what makes a good investment decision? Like what are the fundamentals of a good investment decision for you?
1: Well, I wish I knew the answer to that because uh, I'd be a lot richer than I am. And a lot of investors would also be, I mean, I think it's a, it's it's a highly speculative business if you're getting into it at the early stages. Now, if you go in later in a private equity world, there's a lot more established numbers to deal with. But when we go in, it's more uh, hypothetical, theoretical. It's extrapolation of what you think uh, how markets will build and uh, uh, how successful managements will be in, track, in a, attacking those markets and what the economics will be. Uh, competition what the uh, who else is doing what they're doing what the, the supply sources are uh, and it's uh, it's a very uh, complicated analysis and it's really an art not a science and at the end of the day you try to back people who you think can build build businesses and attract a team around them that will uh, help them implement a vision that they have. And uh, hopefully the vision has been well thought out and they understand the economics of the business. Mm
0: -hmm. I like that you said it's an art, not a science. And you also mentioned, you know, backing people. Are there, is there anything that you ever look for in a founder or can you kind of, I don't know, like I've never been in your position, but if there's something that you can tell, like, I don't know if, if there is anything there, but when you meet someone and if you can kind of tell this person's kind of got what it takes or,
1: Well, every once in a while you do come across someone who uh, has that kind of special source, but, uh, I, I don't think you can totally rely on that. I think, uh, you know, having charisma is, uh, it does help because it gets uh, you to realize that, you know, there are people who can attract other good people to a team and team building is very much part of it. But, uh, A lot of factors go into the equation and uh, that's why not every company is successful. And, and not everybody is designed to be an entrepreneur. Remember Uh, it's a, you know, some people have to work for a living for others. Mm -hmm.
0: I want to talk about that too, because I know you do speak at a lot of business schools and you do give advice for folks, including, you know, aspiring entrepreneurs, and it might be a little different from what other people might say, but, um, I'd love to hear from you, like your thought process around um you know the advice that you give to folks at business schools. I know you'll like ask them to raise their hands if they want to start a business, and you often will recommend that they work for someone else. Let's talk about that.
1: Well, I think we're living at a time. You by the by the way, you're obviously showing you've read the book. Uh uh the uh very often I talk at business schools and when I asked for how many people are planning to start their own business, I it, I don't know this year, because I haven't done it yet this year, but uh, there is a very high percentage. And the reason is that they knew somebody who probably started a business two or three years before and who made a lot of money. And so they say, well, why, you know, I'm smarter than they are. Why shouldn't I uh, be just as successful? And uh, uh, disappoints me a little bit because Uh, that's not a really good reason to start a business. Uh, I'd much rather see passion and uh, understanding of a particular area that, uh, that drives you to say, you know, I've got to start this or, you know, I'll die. I mean, I really, uh, I, I, I want to, I'm desperate to see this idea implemented. Uh, That's a good sign. Uh, Someone who's, you know, had some experience before. And a lot of people coming out of business school haven't had sufficient uh, management experience. Uh, And so I have often said, uh, you know, going with another startup, not necessarily being the entrepreneur, but going there and getting a chance to work under someone who has done it before and learn from them. And also to uh, see the mistakes they make as I, my father taught me always, you know, try to benefit from someone else on, on someone else's nickel, uh, whereas they take higher risk and and then you benefit from it by you know, learning and watching. And I think that even you know the people sh- seem to shun the major companies. I mean, they didn't they, they didn't get to be major companies by. Uh, 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 you know, because they were all stupid. I mean, they there are a lot of great companies in this world, and if you happen to have an opportunity to work for one and and uh, learn skills and work under someone who can teach you, uh, that's a that prepares you to at some point be an entrepreneur. And as I say, not everybody's designed to be an entrepreneur. So I I, I think that we have. Uh, uh, you know, it gets, it'll get sorted out over time when we have those who are, uh, you know, manage to put it all together and understand the economics of what it takes to make a business.
0: I like that. I think there, again, there's so many great lessons here. Um, And, you know, learning from someone else's mistakes on someone else's dime, like taking that time to work for someone, learn from their mistakes and, um, you know, never hurts to learn on someone else's dime as you put it in the book. And, um, you mentioned, like, not everyone's cut out to be an entrepreneur, and it's interesting because, like, when you say, like, you know, the the majority in a classroom will raise their hands that they want to start a business because, as you mentioned, they've seen someone else do it um, and be successful. Um, do you think there's almost, like, let's kind of explore this a little bit further. Is there, like, are there too many people who are just kind of going that route right now with, like, these... Uh, like too idealistic uh, of an, I guess they're a bit too idealistic or they think, okay, this is a quick, this is a way to make a lot of money. What are you kind of seeing out there?
1: Well, I think that's part of it. I think that the, uh, as a result of that, we have a, you know, uh, 25 uh, food delivery companies and uh, 35 dog walkers. uh, And uh, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of repetition and not as much, unique uh, technological developments going on today. Most of what you see are applications of existing technology.
0: That's a good point. How about, um, how about valuations? Um, you did write a bit about valuations, um, like when you were coming along in the business to now, what do you make of valuations these days?
1: Valuations today are high uh, and they have been high for uh, a while. And I think it's because there's a lot of money in funds uh, who are out to put money to work, particularly a lot of bigger funds. And so as a result, they need to put more money to work. And uh, as a result of that, companies get overcapitalized. And in order to absorb these bigger capital amounts, the valuations go up to absorb larger capital. And uh, uh, you know what you might've got for a million dollars Five years ago, you now get half of that in ownership.
0: How do you think this ultimately plays out? Do you think there'll be like a washout um, in, in this or valuations will inevitably have to come down or too, too much money sloshing around? What do you make of that?
1: I, I, I think we're going through a period of uh, uh, high valuations. Uh, uh, and I think there's a little bit of irrationality and the fact that you know the IPO market is so dismal, uh, I think that trickles down to uh, lower valuations in the private market. It just takes a while, and uh, uh, rationality will come back in, and uh, there'll be more you know better, better, more reasonable valuations. But at the moment, particularly in the later stage rounds, there's a lot of money available.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, in the later stage rounds, you mentioned, yeah. Yeah. Um, how about like what you're seeing within your, the space you're operating in? Um, tell me about like what you're seeing there.
1: Well, you know, for early stage, we're, we're doing only early stage investments in a area that people really hadn't focused on, which is the market for, as I said before, products and services and et cetera, for uh, older people. Uh, most venture funds are uh, uh, have different you know fintech uh, healthcare uh, consumer whatever it is we're we are a totally diversified firm and we have but we have one thing that's consistent and that's the customer everything we do no matter what field it is has to serve an older person and uh that's an interesting kind of unique phenomenon. I mean, if you companies in an AI focus, venture firms are focused on AI, uh, can invest in AI companies that do everything. Uh, people that are in in uh, healthcare uh, are uh, providing healthcare for, you know, the masses. We, we have one defining element. We have uh, one customer, but We are diversified in all the different areas that serve that customer. And we're about to say we've made 25 investments. Uh, We haven't lost any yet, but I certainly will. Uh, It's just inevitable. And uh, it's too early to see the full results. It's it's gonna take a couple more years before these early stage companies really uh, have a chance to blossom and build substantial revenues.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, you know, something else I just really appreciate about the book is I think there are a lot of, I mentioned this, a lot of lessons for folks and there's one thing, and I know I'm kind of pivoting here, but, um, you talk about integrity and when you were at Greycroft um, building a culture of integrity. And, um, one of the parts that stood out to me was you wrote a letter to a founder. It was during like a, a fundraise, um, and you pointed to ethics. So I think we can kind of revisit that and, you know, kind of, you, you wrote about, you know, regardless of your age and experience, you talk about values and ethics. I us hope maybe we could talk about that. Um, and if maybe you could re- even revisit that, that story there.
1: Well, I, 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 let me discuss it in a different context. Uh, for the last, oh, I'd say 15 years, uh, I don't know exactly when it started, but it started a while ago, I, I would get every day, every day, literally someone coming up to me at a conference or the street or the subway, wherever it was and say the same thing. It always started the same way. You don't remember me, but, and, uh, I, when it first started, I was very nervous about that because I didn't know what they were going to follow it. But I have to say at at this point in my life, I honestly don't worry anymore. Uh, but I, I know it's going to happen by the way. It hasn't happened yet today. Uh, So it's it's midday, so I have a chance that it will still happen. But it uh, it happened many times yesterday when I was at a conference. And it's always, you don't remember me, but uh, you were the only person who returned my phone call. But uh, I worked for you when I was, you know, 21 coming out of college. Uh, You don't remember me, but you took the time to meet with me and see my project, even though you said no. You don't remember me, but I work for you. You don't remember me, but uh, I, uh, I uh, you invested in my company. I mean, there are so many, you don't remember me buts. And what I learned from that over time is that how you treat people and how you run your life uh, really comes back at you. Uh, and uh, you know, if you think about what I've just said, Uh, all those sentences after, but could have been a lot of different kinds of, uh, but. uh, And uh, I think that running your life with, you know, with an ethical approach, with integrity, with uh, respect for the people you're dealing with, with uh, sun sensitivity. I mean, one of the big things in venture is you have to learn how to say no, since so much of what we do is turning down deals, not accepting them, Uh, saying no with humility, Uh, all goes to build a reputation and uh, it's all cumulative. I mean, uh, I I say in the book, you know, people have commented to me, God, you raised that fund in three months. Normally a fund will take a year to two to raise. And I always say, yes, three months, but it was 50 years in three months. And that gets down to this building, you know, a reputation and, a, uh, you know, a, a lifestyle uh, um, and building a name in, in a field that uh, you can be proud of. And I, at this point, uh, I'm no longer concerned about the tail end of that conversations so, that uh, I've gotten some very, very, very nice uh, follow ones to that you know, I have a policy of every phone call I get gets returned in 24 hours. Uh, I try to write a lot of personal notes in handwriting. Uh, all those things are how you build a reputation and uh, how you treat other people. And it, it comes back to either, you know, make you feel good or haunt you at some point.
0: It's a really good point and A lot of great lessons um, within that. Another thing that I loved, and you mentioned you were at a conference yesterday. You have this amazing strategy when you go to a conference and you don't sit with people from your firm. Can you tell folks about what you do when you go to conferences or any events? Um,
1: well, I, 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 the purpose of going is not to circle around, which is the absolutely 100% the tendency. I've seen it so many times. Uh, to to you know, The most comfortable is to sit at a table for lunch with the three other people if they're there from your office or people you know beforehand or uh, and I always try to break those crowds up uh, if they're people who work for the firm but uh, my own life I you know feel it's an opportunity to meet new people and and introduce yourself and uh, find out about other people and uh, uh, you know uh, by stage in life unfortunately it ends up with too many business cards and uh, email contacts that I don't have enough time to follow up in 24 hours. Uh, but uh, it nevertheless uh, makes you available. And I think people appreciate that. And I think that, uh, you know, people get, lo- younger people particularly get lost at their desk and are so intense in what they're doing, they don't get out there. That's why my subtitle is, you know, 50 years in venture capital and never driving alone means, you know, everything you do is cumulative. Everything you do is related to the people you do it with. You can't do it by yourself.
0: Yeah, certainly. And I I just love that. And I think it'll be such a treat if someone was going to a conference, they didn't know you and they got to meet you. And just the fact that you're so open and it's taken you some really interesting um, places and you've done cool things in volunteering, art, um, theater, which is really cool. I didn't know that you were a a, a backer of Hamilton, politics, business investing, um, you name it. And- um, I see that you're sitting in an office right now. i take it you're probably in New York and gosh, just the importance of, you know, people getting out and being around other people. What do you, what do you make of um, kind of the post pandemic world return to work? Are we, are you worried? Are you seeing people go back to the, you know, city business centers? Um, I talk think, to me about your I life. think,
1: it, I think it's very sad that there people are not back at their desks. I think they're missing uh, an awful lot of interaction and camaraderie and mentorship that you only get by being present. And uh, uh, it's unfortunate uh, that too many firms have been uh, dictated by their employees who, uh, you know, have gotten used to having a more casual lifestyle, which I'm not against, but uh, they they don't know what they're missing, particularly younger people. I think it's probably less important for Certainly my age, but uh, people coming out of college uh, or business schools or, you know, in their early careers to not have that chance to mix with even people their own age is a real shortcoming. And, and it will show up uh, at some point down the line where they just won't have those that those Rolodexes or relationships.
0: Yeah, the relationships and just, you know, the people that you meet in your life and um we only have a few minutes left, and I, I do want to bring this up because you wrote so beautifully in the book, and that was about your your wife, uh, your late wife. And you know Warren Buffett often says that you know the most important decision you make in your life is who you choose to be your life partner. And um, I'd just love to hear from you about like the impact uh, your wife had on you and you as a person and um, all facets of your life.
1: Well, I I was married twice. First time. Uh, was not as successful, uh, shorter. Uh, it was only seven years. And my second wife, who uh, passed away a year and a half ago from Alzheimer's, uh, I was married to 50 years. Uh, we had three three children, actually two children. One was my previous marriage. Uh, but I, as far as I'm concerned, and she was concerned, we had three sons. Uh, and uh, we uh, worked very hard together on building a family life Uh and uh, did a lot of things together, supported each other. And uh, I would say we had a very good marriage. And uh, I think what we were most proud of, uh, I'm sure she'd be proud of it today if she were alive, is that uh, our three sons, one's married 30 years, one's married 25, and one's married 20 approximately. Uh, And uh, that's kind of unique in the world I'm in where you have three children, all of whom are still in their first marriage. So uh, I guess we must have built a good uh, family image and, uh, and uh, tried to build a home life and, uh, uh, you know, convey uh, style of living and ethics. And uh, uh, I think, you know, we are, we deliberately did not, uh, go out of our way to spoil our children. I think you can't avoid it today to some degree, uh, but they uh, at least understand values today, I think, I hope.
0: Yeah, and none of them are in um, ventures. While well. They all have like really creative fields, which is really cool to see as well.
1: Well, that was one of my decisions also. I, I, I'm, I'll never know whether that was the right or wrong one, but I uh, decided early on uh, when they were eligible to go to work that I did not want them to work and uh, for me where someone would always had the chance to make a comment. And I'm sure you've heard that so-and-so wouldn't have their job if it weren't for their father or, you know, they're trading on their father's name. My sons are not trading on my name and they never even interned for an hour in, in any of my firms. So they, uh, I wanted them the ability to say, I did it on my own. Now, you know, they will say to you that having the last name of Patrykov has helped, uh, but that's, that goes, I mean, that's okay. Uh, but they can say they did it on their own and uh, all that goes with it, because I did it on my own, so it's nice to have them say it.
0: Well, any parting thoughts before I let you go?
1: No, except that, you know, I wrote this book for two reasons. One was to, you uh, encourage older people not to pack it all in and go to the golf course and uh, retire. And that there was, you know, if I'm like, if I write about life expectancy, they have a lot to live for and they should think about going into a new business or going back into the same business or doing something exciting with their lives. And I also wrote it for younger people to, so it was kind of two markets uh, was to say, you know, live an interesting life. Be open to the opportunities that come in front of you. Uh, look for out for interview uh, for opportunities, um, and uh, you know, don't let them pass you by. to and say, you know, I'll get to it tomorrow, or be too lazy. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, I've lived a life of curiosity, of openness to try things. And I, I, I would encourage strongly younger people who uh, kind of get lost in, in their work and so absorbed that they never taste the fruits of life. And so I hope I've accomplished that. And I, I've had enough response for the book that I know that that message has gotten across for from both, from both markets.
0: I can say that as a millennial, I can say there's certain things that I will take away and apply to my own life. And I just love leaving folks with that lesson of being open and being curious. And, you know, Alan Patrickoff, this has been such an amazing conversation. I've learned a lot from you. I encourage everyone to go pick up the book, No Red Lights, Reflections on Life, 50 Years in Venture Capital and Never Driving Alone. And by the way, Alan, I hope you have a great run at the New York City Marathon and amazing <laughs> time at Burning Man. Um, can't wait to hear all about it.
1: All right. Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you.